Let's open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Give heed, please, to the Word of God as I read the text for you this morning. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Please pray with me. Our Father, give us ears to hear your word this morning and sanctify us with the truth of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a while since I was able to share from the Gospel of Mark with you, and I want to pick up where we left off last time. We did a jet tour through chapter 13. I believe that was back sometime in uh, the fall, October perhaps, and we're going to pick up here with a big shift in the narrative of Mark's gospel, and we're going to see Jesus continue to make his way toward the cross. The gospels, as you know, present Jesus' ministry but they're always presenting them in, as being in contrast to the Jewish interpretation of God's kingdom. It doesn't matter whether you're reading Matthew, which is a very Jewish-centered gospel, or you're reading Mark, which is more focused on the Gentile perspective of things, perhaps or whether you're reading Luke or whether you're reading John, you always find Jesus presenting himself and presenting the kingdom of God, and that's not what the Jewish leaders and, in fact, most of the Jewish people were expecting. They did not see the Messiah, that is, the Christ, as the suffering servant of Isaiah. They did not see Jesus as what he said in 
Back in chapter 10 and verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Statements like that from Jesus were just so against the grain of what Judaism saw as the kingdom of heaven. They were all about the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And to them, that was the sum of God's kingdom. And if you were a good Jew, you aspired to keep the law, right? Well, you didn't do it perfectly, and you knew there was atonement for sin, but you felt like that was the sum of it all. That was the kingdom. Outwardly conform to the law, that was sufficient for your righteousness. After all, you were a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, quite literally. You were with the in crowd, unless you were just a really bad Jew, and you didn't keep the law and the ceremony. And the Christ, who was to come, the Messiah, he was more or less a figurehead for the nation. And one day he would arrive, and they were expecting him. But he was to applaud their faithfulness. He was to overthrow their enemies. He was going to usher in this golden age of the Jewish nation, of Israel, in a quite literal, physical, worldly sense. Bringing heaven to earth. It was an entirely earthbound view of God's kingdom. And let me just say at the outset here, having said that, isn't that really what so many in the church are expecting of the kingdom of God? A lot of churches, or that at least fall under that banner, see the kingdom of heaven not so much as what's coming, as far as its fulfillment, but what should be right now. Rather than what is but is not yet, as we sometimes say about the kingdom of heaven, it is now, and we are in it, yet we're still in this world, and this world has to be done away with. A new heavens and a new earth must come. But somehow or another, the church at least in the broader sense, not just in America, but around the world, seems to have gotten away from confessing what the Scripture says about Christ and His kingdom, and we've adopted this notion that the kingdom is here and now. And it's all about our best life now or some other trite cliche, and you know that's what we're pursuing. God wants you happy and healthy and wealthy now, and if... You aren't living at a certain level, at least of this or that, maybe your sanctification, then somehow or another you probably aren't in the kingdom, and that seems to be the way it's judged. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus inevitably and increasingly clashes with their religious views because Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. It's not of this world. 
is presently in this world as his people are in this world in the church representing his kingdom but this is not the kingdom in all its fullness and all its glory we participate in it you're doing that this morning you're worshiping God the king of heaven through Christ Jesus our Lord who is seated at his right hand But when Jesus came, it should be no surprise to us that then, as now, many didn't want to accept him as God presented him. Jesus certainly emphasizes the law as he teaches, but he also emphasized that the Jews, like the rest of the world, all those filthy, rotten Gentile sinners out there, that weren't a part of the commonwealth of Israel, Jesus emphasized that the Jews were just as much sinners as those Gentiles. They didn't deserve to be in the kingdom of heaven. There had to be one who could bring them into it. And that's who Christ was and is. Jesus always then presents himself as the only righteous one who came to give his life for repentant sinners who look to him in faith. Jesus didn't come and say, try harder. Jesus came and said, oh, this is the law, and you don't keep it like you ought. I do, said Jesus, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to acquire the righteousness, the perfection according to the law that God demands of you, and then for your failure to do that, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to give my perfect life a ransom for you, a sacrifice. So while Jesus often speaks of the law and he brings the law and it, it hammers away at the religious leaders and the people for their legalism and their moralism, and in all their piety, thinking they were something that they weren't, somehow righteous in and of themselves and keeping some standard that maintained that right before God, Jesus says, actually, the law is far more than you think. It's, it must be observed from the heart. And unless you do that, well, you've not really kept it at all. And even in that, all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So there's this tension that builds between Jesus and the Jews. Between their view of the kingdom and between the reality Jesus portrays until the Jews can carry out their plot to kill him. And that's the tip tipping point, if you will, when it comes to such a, a bottleneck, if you will, that there's nothing else that can happen except that they turn against Christ. It, it can't go on any further. But all the while, there's been this indication that that's about to happen, and then it doesn't. And Jesus has these confrontations, and they want to do something, but they can't, because Jesus' hour hasn't come. And so God, in his providence, is controlling all of this until at just the right time. They will turn on Christ, and in so doing, they will bring him to the cross 
where God has foreordained all along that he should atone for our sin. That tipping point is here in this passage. And we find here the only thing commendable for the sinner is abandon. All hope of salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Trusting in anything else is tantamount to betrayal, treason, treachery, if you will. So keep that in mind as we come to this passage. First, I want to just very quickly recap chapter 13 because we need to find some context here since we haven't been together in this for a while. Chapter 13, you remember, emphasized three things. The end of the Jewish age, the time of God's kingdom and him dealing exclusively through the Jewish nation, the ethnic Israel. It deals with Christ's return and then what to expect in between. That's what we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, you'll remember, and explained these things to his disciples as he's coming to Jerusalem for the last time. They've gone in, he's cleansed the temple and all of that, and he's come back out and they've asked him some questions about statements he's made regarding the end of the age, and he explains this. He says the end of the Jewish age will be very obvious. The time of Jesus' return is unknown, but it's at the door. It's imminent. And the period between them, this present age, or the last days as the scripture calls it, that is an unspecified amount of time. We don't know how long that will be. But the events that characterize it will be obvious. Jesus said in chapter 13, there's a definite end for the Jewish age. It identified, he identifies signs that characterize the last days, ongoing tribulation and evangelism during that time. You're in that period right now. We're considering that period as we go through the book of the Revelation from the different perspectives of the, the trumpets and the bowls and all that, the seals before that. So there's this unknown period of time and here's what you can expect and here's encouragement for you as you're going through it and waiting for Christ to return in all his glory but in chapter 13 Jesus identified the Jewish tribulation he predicted it would be a catastrophic event there would be the destruction of the temple and that happened in AD 70 and then Jesus says in those days the last days after that tribulation, the tribulation of the Jewish age, he says that you are going to be in this while I am ascended to my throne in heaven and the elect are going to be gathered through the gospel. And then he gives a lesson of the fig tree to teach us about the Jewish age as an identifiable sign that marks the time, the beginning of the time that we're in right now. And then he gives a lesson in the parable, verses 32 and 37, of the unpredictable nature of his return and the need for diligence among his servants. So that's where we are.
Jesus has patiently, through his ministry, clearly taught that he came to fulfill the law, the law of the old covenant. He did that, as I said before, by his righteous life, by his sacrificial death. And that he would expand the kingdom and it would go beyond Israel and it would reach out to you and me, the Gentiles of the world, the non-Jews. Unless perhaps there's a Christian Jew here this morning. But it went beyond the Jewish nation and here we are. And we're worshiping the same God who revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. And the same God who gave us the old Testament scriptures who gave the old covenant through Moses and now he's fulfilled all of that in Christ and Christ has sealed that with his blood in the new covenant and when Jesus is at this point as Mark tells us Jesus is going to the cross to shed his blood He enters his passion, as we refer to it. This is the Passion Week. He's come into Jerusalem and the week leading up to his death on Friday of that week. In fact, Matthew 26, verse 2, just prior to this account, the corresponding account in Matthew, tells us that Jesus said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. How do they know that? Jesus had told them several times. Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to wicked men. They're going to crucify him. He'll be buried. He'll be raised again on the third day. Foreign thought to them. They just couldn't grasp that. So much so that Peter would come to Jesus at one point and say, Never, Lord, this can't be. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not being concerned with the things of God. They knew. And now it's about to happen. And having said that, Jesus enters Jerusalem, you'll remember, back in chapter 11. He curses the fig tree. He cleanses the temple. He has several public confrontations with the Jewish religious leaders. He gives his disciples the Olivet Discourse that I just gave you an overview of. And then he faces the cross. That's where we are. But what we find here in these verses is that tipping point that I mentioned. That point of no return for Christ as the cross comes in full view. But it's framed in that well-known account of a woman anointing Jesus with a fragrant ointment. And that beautiful act of faith then exposing our Lord's betrayer. And all this then that puts everything else in motion. And what a wonderful account it is. Judas Iscariot will choose to reject Christ as a suffering servant of God promised long before in Scripture. 
And he'll do that even as the woman chooses to accept the necessity of her Lord and Savior's death. Two very different people. Both disciples of Christ. Learners of Christ. And everyone who professes to be a Christian is a disciple of Christ. You're saying, I, I, I learned from Christ. I'm being taught by him about the truth of God and his kingdom. So they're both disciples, but one expresses faith in a beautiful way, and the other decides, that's not good enough. I'm going to betray him. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I embrace God's perfect Savior in such a way that I know and believe with all my heart that he must have gone to the cross for me? There was no other way into the kingdom. There's either faith or ultimately there's betrayal. Look at verse 1. Two days before the Passover, so this is Wednesday. The Passover would have been Friday at this point in Israel's history. Two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now this is very significant as you probably know. Jesus did not come to this moment at any time in the year. He came to this moment at the right time. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, At the right time God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law that he might redeem those who were under the law and it had to be at this time because he had to be the actual Passover lamb so it's two days before Jesus time is very short and Passover in the feast of unleavened bread was observed in the first month of the beginning of the Jewish year, first month of their calendar, which for us is March, April, sometime around in there, which is why we observe Easter at that time, because the Passover is observed at that time, and it's closely related as far as the sequence of events. You'll remember that the Passover celebrated or commemorated, I should say, also God passing over the people of Israel as he's beginning to bring them out of Egyptian bondage. God kills the firstborn of Egypt, but he passes over all the firstborn, all the houses of the people of Israel there in the land of Goshen. The angel of death passes over the households and kills the firstborn of the Egyptian. The feast began first with a spotless lamb killed for each household. If your household was too small, you could join another household, household and you could, you could share in that lamb that was chosen. Because on that first day, a spotless lamb is killed then its blood spread on the doorpost and the lintel of the house on that very first Passover. The meat's roasted in fire. It's eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And 
On that first day, all leaven is removed from the house, and that represented the absence of sin, the need for complete righteousness. And only unleavened bread could be eaten for the following week. So you have this wonderful feast with all of its important imagery. God loves imagery. He likes to teach us and solidify the truth about his kingdom with imagery as in the Feast of the Old Testament, as in the Lord's table that we will observe at the end of the service today. God delivers them from Egypt, and that pictures deliverance from the world, from Babylon, if you will. Deliverance from God's wrath for the sin of the world, the world of sinners. The blood of the spotless sacrificial lamb preserves them. No leaven equals God's requirement of righteousness. The death of the lamb equals the penalty for sin. The blood of the lamb equals atonement. Eating the bread and the lamb and spreading the blood. Acts of faith in God's promise to save. Now the Lord, who gave Israel the Passover and brought them out of Egypt, is the very one, listen, who is now facing the cross. It's the same Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh. This is of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Son who entered into humanity, became one of us yet without sin, and he came that he might die. And what Jesus is about to do for his people was foreshadowed in that feast that now all the Jews are celebrating. Jerusalem expanded in population exponentially every year during this time. And as the people came together to celebrate this feast, we read here that at this particular time, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Do it secretly in some way, for they said, you can't do it during the feast. You can't do it publicly, lest there be an uproar from the people. Well, there was a lot of talk about Jesus. There was a lot of excitement about Jesus as he's entered into Jerusalem. Remember? Hosanna. <laughs> Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus is at really the height of his popularity, which is going to quickly go downhill in just a few days. But they're worried about what the crowd will do. And so they, if they're going to do it, they must do it stealthily and secret. And so they're plotting. And what I want you to understand is that while they should be preparing their hearts for Passover, they're plotting to kill Christ. They're going to kill the Passover lamb, but they're going to murder him. 
they will end up actually being the means by which Jesus will die, coupled with the Roman authorities and their mode of execution, which was crucifixion. So Jesus was not recognized by them as the Passover lamb. Verse 3, Jesus comes to Bethany, small village, you'll remember back from chapter 11, just outside of Jerusalem toward the Mount of Olives. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were from there, but on, at this moment they're in the house of Simon the leper, meaning he was probably once a leper and he had been healed by Jesus. And now they were together with Simon in his home with Christ and they are giving Jesus a dinner, John chapter 12, verse 2 says. Martha served, as was seemingly always Martha's custom, and Mary, as seemingly was always Mary's custom, was not helping Martha serve. I'm not sure if Martha was in an uproar at this time as she was earlier, back uh, several chapters ago, but Luke tells us that she was not happy with Mary at times for not helping her. But Mary is doing what Mary does best. She's focusing on Jesus. She's watching Christ. She's listening to his teaching. And John's gospel tells us that Mary is the woman in the story. Matthew and Mark do not name her, but John says it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And she comes to Jesus, and she's going to give all of her attention, but not just that. She's going to minister to him. And she brings a small alabaster flask, a, a personal-sized perfume bottle, if you will. The flask itself, made of one whole piece, and you could not open it unless you broke the neck of it. But she brings that. It's her personal fragrance. Now, ladies, you understand a personal fragrance, right? You hope that when you wear your fragrance, people like it, one, and they identify you with it, don't you? Men do the same, but probably to a lesser degree. And we do that. We associate things with smells. Mary brings her own personal fragrance in a very costly bottle, but the perfume, the ointment made of pure nard, which was very rare. It came from India, I think up in the Himalayan mountains somewhere, from a spice or an herb, and it was made. Both of these together were very valuable, and we are told worth almost a whole year's wages, at 300 denarii. She brings that. She breaks the neck. And she doesn't say, what do you think of this? How does this smell? She walks to Jesus as he's reclining at the table, which was the custom, especially in the evening meal among the Jews, and she just pours it all over his head. And it runs down, and it, she pours it all over his feet, we're told in John's gospel. And then John says, she wipes his feet with the hair of her head.
Maybe she was weeping like the other woman who came and wept over Jesus' feet and wiped them with the hair of her head. At another time, This is a thorough anointing. You get the picture? A thorough anointing. And Jesus says, she's done what she could. She has, verse 8, anointed my body beforehand for burial. And I tell you that at this point because this is what's in Mary's mind. Mary understands why Jesus came, and what he must do. And she's given up whatever she had been taught by the religious leaders, whatever she had been taught growing up about what the Messiah was to be. Now she fully embraces, he must die for me. I'm that kind of a sinner. Now Mary was a good Jew. So was Martha. So was Lazarus. I'm sure theirs was a good upstanding Jewish family. She did all the right things ceremonially. But she has come to this full understanding that I cannot be in the kingdom of heaven apart from Jesus dying for me. And I am so overcome with gratitude and thankfulness and love for him because of what he is about to do. I'm just going to anoint him for burial. And it may seem strange to us. We don't do that on a personal way to those when, that we know when they die. We, we don't handle that preparation of their body for burial. But that's the way the Jews did it. And they would wrap them in linen and prepare spices and ointment and, and then bury their dead. Joseph of Arimathea and... Nicodemus did that for Jesus as quickly as they could. And the ladies would come after, after we, we know, after Jesus was raised, they came to anoint his body further for burial and, and do it better than the men had done it, I'm sure. That was their intention. And he was gone. So Jesus was never really fully anointed on the one hand, and yet he was because Mary, Mary anoints him. She didn't contribute in any way to the lavish sacrifice Jesus would make for her and all believers by his death on the cross, but she could express her faith. She could express her love for Christ as lavishly as she knew how. And it was a beautiful thing, said Jesus. Your faith is a beautiful thing to God. If you're here this morning and all your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and you, like Mary, understand I'm such a sinner that the perfect Son of God must die for me, that's a beautiful thing to God. That's a beautiful thing to Christ Jesus our Lord. She expressed her faith as lavishly as she knew how. Do you express your faith for Christ as lavishly as you know how? You say, well, I'm not sure how to do that. Will you live before the face of God all the time? You, you love righteousness, though so you don't always do it as you wish. You're like Paul in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? 
Yet nonetheless, said Paul, with the mind I serve the law of God, and with the flesh I serve the law of sin. But I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how I will be delivered. This is Mary. This is you if you're a Christian. You come this morning. You sing. You say, well, I can't sing very well. I don't want to sing too loudly. Listen. Sing. It, it does not matter if you are off key. We make a joyful noise unto the Lord as we, we joke about sometimes. Sing. Sing loudly. Sing praise to God. When you recite the Apostles' Creed, when you recite things from the confessions together as a body, let's do it with heart. Let's do it with soul. Let's do it with all our mind, with all our might. Let's praise God. Let's lavish on Him praise and thanksgiving, which is the expression of our faith. Sadly, some in the room of Simon's house didn't appreciate the gesture Mary made. Judas Iscariot evidently expressed their indignation as he scolds Mary and he says, Why all this waste? Can you imagine that? What you just did for him, that's, that's a waste. That is a waste. Well, it's faith in Christ and expressing that and loving God and praising him in worship and then going out into the world and living every day before the face of God Fulfilling your vocation as a husband, as a father, as a co-worker, as an employee, as a neighbor. Loving God with your heart, soul, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Not perfectly, but from the heart nonetheless. That pleases God. That's, those are expressions of your faith. And Judas said, that's a waste. That's what the world says. It's a waste. Why did you pour out this expensive perfume? Why did you break that expensive alabaster flask, Mary? You could have sold that and given the money to the poor. Well, we know from the other Gospels that he wasn't really concerned with the poor. Judas was such a convincing disciple otherwise, though, that they had even made him the treasurer. He kept the money bag and we're told he used to help himself to it whenever he wanted. He's just thinking, man, think of what I could have done with that 300 denarii. He's not thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done and going to do. He's not thinking about what God has revealed about his kingdom through Christ. Jesus scolds the disciples for missing the significance of the beautiful thing. Verse 6. Don't scold her. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Do not scold her. Leave her alone. Don't ever scold anyone for expressing their faith in Christ. Now, if they've got something wrong about Scripture, lovingly point them in the right direction. Right? Teach them the way more thoroughly of the Lord in great patience. But don't scold them. Jesus says, 
She has done a beautiful thing. You have ample opportunity to do good to the poor, to, to do external works of righteousness. Yes, that's a good thing. Jesus isn't saying don't do it. He's just saying you don't have me. You're missing the importance of what this signifies. You're missing the meaning of the Passover you've come to celebrate. I'm the fulfillment of it all. He must die. They needed to embrace that. They needed to trust him. And Mary's faith in Jesus is on display because it's our faith in which God delights far more, listen, than your most sincere religious expressions. God's looking at your heart. And when he looks at the heart of the believer, it is faith, no matter how small, no matter how weak, it is faith that God rejoices in, that God is pleased with, that God says is a beautiful thing. And that's why our Lord said that Mary's act of faith would be told the world over whenever the gospel is proclaimed. Well, guess what? February, almost here, 2022, we're on the verge of a new month. And here we are worshiping the Lord together and Mary and her faith are being commemorated. She's an example for you as a believer and for me. She believed Jesus was the Passover. He was her righteousness. He was her justification. He was the righteous Lord whose blood must be shed for our deliverance out of Egypt. Deliverance from the world and from the coming wrath of God. Judas refused to do that. A savior that must die. Well, that's not appealing, is it? The religious leaders felt the same way, so he decided he would join them. And he strikes a deal. They promised to give him money. He would betray Christ for money. And we are told in Matthew 26, verse 15, it was a mere 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, we're told in the Old Testament. Think about that. That is substantially less than the value of Mary's ointment, monetarily. He agreed to betray the glorious, wonderful, beautiful Son of God, who in all his perfection gave his life for us. He said, I'll betray you for money. I, I'm not going to waste my time on you anymore. You've not turned out to be what I wanted you to be, Jesus. I would have rather had Mary's flask and sold it and kept the money for myself. But I so despise what you are, I will just take 30 pieces of silver and betray the Lord of heaven. Wow. Well, the bottom line is we're either like Judas or we're like Mary, right? When it comes down to it. We are either like Mary 
who lavishly expressed her faith, who was so overwhelmed with what Jesus was doing for her and who he was and the cross he was about to bear, the death he must die, so overwhelmed that she expressed her faith the only way she could in that very pivotal moment of Jesus' ministry. But Judas walked away and betrayed him. Very quickly, because I've used up my time, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you wish to turn there. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, which had all sorts of problems, but Paul never said, the whole lot of you, you just don't have any faith at all. You, you're not living at a certain level of sanctification, so away with you. He didn't say that. He's just dealing patiently, lovingly, but firmly with their sins. And in chapter 5, he's talking about sexual immorality in the church that's defiling it. And he's talking about don't associate yourself with people who are caught up in those things. Sometimes we have to pull away. In fact, the scripture says not to associate with someone who's being a brother, who, someone who calls himself a brother, but who is caught up in sexual immorality. You need to distance yourself from them. doesn't mean you don't love them and pray for them and confront them about it lovingly, as Galatians 6 tells us. But we nonetheless must deal with it. And Paul's dealing with that here. And he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning, verse 9, and 10, um, the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to you, don't associate with anyone who bears the name of her brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And he goes on to say, what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? The scripture goes on to tell us that Jesus is the Passover. That Christ is, in fact, Paul writing elsewhere to the Corinthians says, Jesus is actually that Passover. You need to purge yourself of the sin. Don't be associated with it. Don't accept it. Don't be comfortable with it. Why? Because Christ, our Passover, has come. What does that mean? Jesus fulfilled everything that that Passover tells us about. And we are to come to him, not happy with sin, but mourning over it. But not just mourning, but looking to him in faith. And looking to Christ as our Passover lamb. And like Mary expressing our faith. I hope that as you look at Jesus and you think about what he has come to do for you, what he is, who he is, and all his beauty as the Son of God, you'll be brought like Mary to express your faith in the only way you know how and to know that God sees that as a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are grateful to have your word. It tells us we are sinners. And Father, how sad that makes us as 
your children who have been born again of your spirit. We mourn the fact that we don't live as of yet in perfection. But we are not cast down utterly. We then look to Jesus. We look to him as the one who makes all things right with you. Who removes the guilt and the shame. Our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of our most lavish expressions of faith. So when we have come together each Lord's Day, Father, I pray you'll remind us to worship you in spirit and truth, but do that with heart and with great love. And Father, we just pray that as we observe the Lord's table now, we will remember its association with the Passover. And what a wonderful thing it is that our Lord Jesus has done in fulfilling it. This we pray, Father, in his glorious name. Amen.